responsibility is to give them opportunities to grow and 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 the same as we do in here our our, our responsibility here of course is to give our people the opportunity to grow and to become more like the lord and understand him and and so we've we're in a series that we've been looking at on how we can grow a little bit uh, as it pertains not only to the church as a whole but us as individuals and so uh, we're, we're in a series called Unstoppable with the idea that God has not called us as individuals nor as a group called Elm Grove Baptist Church to just merely survive and just sort of exist. And if we're all honest with ourselves, none of us, no individual in here would say, you know, I, I really don't really care if my life matters whatsoever. I'm just sort of here to take up space and breathe some air and one day be put in the ground, and nobody ever think that I did anything that was worthwhile whatsoever. There's not a, a sane person in here that would say, I want my life to be absolutely meaningless. All of us, every single one of us, want our lives to count towards something that is incredible. And as a church, or whatever church you may regularly attend, if you're visiting here with us, you know that ultimately you really want your church to matter. You want your church to make a dent in the community, to really have its impact felt. And I've thought about it this way. What if Elm Grove Baptist Church next Sunday ceased to exist? There was no more Elm Grove Baptist Church. Would our community be worse off because we did not exist? Would people say, where did they go? We need them. We need that church. And that's what we all want. We all want that to be the case, that, that we are making such an impact that people would miss us if we were gone. And so we're looking at how we can do that, both individually and and collectively. And so we, we're beginning today, or, or, or continuing rather, the series that we're in. And today we're going to look at uh, the idea that church growth is something that God has ordained and that biblical churches will experience legitimate growth. And there are a lot of different, when you say church growth to different people, and, and my wife and I were talking about this this week, that it, you can say church growth to 10 different people and they'll give you 10 different ideas and opinions on what they think that means and what it's all about and how you should go about it and so on. And in, in the short experience that I've had in ministry, there are hundreds of different approaches and ideas and thoughts and lots of different biblical ways to look at it. And, and people all over the, the world in Bible colleges and seminaries and so on train people on what it means to, to have church growth and so on. And I did an Internet search this week, and it was interesting. I found one website that was called DoubleYourChurchAttendance.com. And they guarantee you in 90 days, you apply their principles for only $37. You'll double, no joke. They cut it down from 97. Then they went to 67. It's one of those deals. It's kind of like a church growth infomercial online. I thought, what, what have we come to? But anyway, for $37, you apply their principles, download their little program, you get their newsletter, and you do all this stuff in your church, and they guarantee you. I guess money back or something. I don't know. But they guarantee you in 90 days you'll double your church attendance. And so I have their program. We're gonna, No, I'm, I'm just joking. But, but you know, it's amazing. You, you see things like that, and, boy, it just sounds so easy to, to see more people come to church or whatever it may be. And, and, and good. then you have the, the other side of, of the spectrum where people say, well, you don't need to think about growth whatsoever. You just... You know, just study God's word and just that's it. You don't really have to do anything. You just take, you let him take care of all of it. And, and, and so there, there's lots of different uh, opinions and ideas. You look in things like the Internet or whatever. And then from my own experience and what I read also in the Scripture, I, I've sort of come to the conclusion that, that what our goal must be is legitimate growth. 
And we'll explain a little bit in just a minute of what that means, but it may or may not be what you think. Some of us would think, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, legitimate growth. I understand. I'm on board with that. Some would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why on earth should I care? But we have only one reliable source to go to when it comes to understanding what God's original intent was for what we know as the church. And so when you look with me at the Scripture, our only reliable source, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to see from the very beginning what God designed the church to be and what we can learn from that today. And so once you look with me at Acts chapter 2, if you brought a Bible, Acts is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And if you didn't, don't worry about it. We'll put the verses when we get to them up on the screen behind me. But I want to read a little bit of chapter 2 to sort of set the scene for what is going on and what we can pull and learn From the scripture today. So look at it with me, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. They'd come for this feast. When the sound occurred, the multitude came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now understand, if we pause for just a second on the Scripture, that when they said, Aren't these all Galileans? Galilean people were not viewed as being the most intelligent, well-read, highly educated people in the world. In fact, it was just the opposite. Uh, When Jesus was said to have come from Nazareth, uh, somebody said, does anything ever come out of Nazareth that's good? It was from Galilee. They they weren't viewed as the most high society kind of people. And so when they say, aren't these people who are all speaking Galileans, like how on earth are they speaking any language but what their their original language is? And so it says uh, in verse 8, how is it? that we hear each of us in our own native language. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Phrygia, rather, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own languages the magnificent acts of God. Verse 12. And they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? And like any crowd has, there were the, those detractors. But some sneered and said, They're full of new wine. They're just drunk. There's nothing amazing going on. Good grief. You just get drunk, the same thing would happen to you, basically, is what they're saying. They're out of their minds. Verse 14, though, but Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Jewish men and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. In verse 16, he says, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So let's set the scene just a little bit, kind of catch up on the timeline. They were all together for the feast called Pentecost, which happened 50 days after the Passover, which in essence celebrated the giving of the law uh, from God to the Israelite people through Moses. So they're all there for this feast. And as a result, this was one of the three pilgrimage feasts that the Israelites were to participate in each year. So this, this crowd that was there from all these different countries made sense because they were to, to be gathered there in Jerusalem on three different occasions each year, and this was one of them. And so we see then as, as they're all together in one place, the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had promised, comes rushing into the room. And it sounds like maybe a tornado or a violent wind, some hurricane-force wind. 
that comes rushing through the room. And as a result of that sound, the Bible says, a crowd gathered. Now, think about that. Down the street, you hear something. You're on Main Street in Murray, and something crazy is going on in one of the buildings. Most likely, a crowd is going to gather. They're going to wonder what's going on. Same thing that happens. And when they gather, they're astounded and amazed because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, had given these people, the disciples and the other people that were gathered there with them, the ability to speak in different languages so that they could communicate with the people from foreign countries the magnificent works of God, it says. They're not just talking about the weather. They're not just sitting and having a conversation about nothing. They are declaring to people in their own language so they can understand it what God had done. And so as a result, some people are astonished. How on earth could this be possible? I want to know more. I'm curious. Other people, like, like always, reject it and said so they're just drunk. Peter then stands up and says, let me tell you what's going on. These people aren't drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, for crying out loud. They're not drunk. They are, they are filled with God's Spirit because this is what Joel said would happen. That in the last days, the last days meaning after Jesus is gone, the coming of the Holy Spirit, here he is, he fills us up inside. There's going to be some things happening you've never imagined before. People are going to be reached that you never thought would be reached. And as a result, we see the picture that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, wasn't just for the people that were Jewish and hanging out in Jerusalem. It was for everybody. So Peter goes on to say, here's the deal. And he lays out for them an incredible sermon and tells them that, look, you've been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. And he came and you rejected him. He fulfilled all the scripture. And Peter lays it out over the next few verses. Jesus was, the Messiah was, was prophesied to do this. Jesus fulfilled it. He said it was going to die. Jesus fulfilled it. He was going to be raised again. Jesus fulfilled all that. So he gives them this huge sermon. And at the end, he says, you know what? That Messiah you've been looking for for hundreds of years, he came and guess what you did to him? You rejected him, but worse than that, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. Look at verse 36. Peter gets to the end and he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel, all the Jewish people, know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Imagine the Jewish people. If you can at all put yourself in their shoes for just a second. What they had hoped for, the hope of their nation was the Messiah. This this hope, this person that would come and and he would change everything and he, he would give them hope and restore their future and he would set things right and they would never have to worry again and he would save them. And they missed him. And Peter says, not only did you miss him, but you rejected him. Not only did you reject him, but you killed him. But God has made him Lord and Messiah. He, he is now raised again. And in verse 37, imagine what they felt when they heard this. They were pierced to the heart. They were destroyed. They were broken and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And then verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. And the end of the story, basically, for that little part is verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized, just like he had said. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Now, I have never preached a sermon after which 3,000 people got saved. Now, maybe one day God will use me in that capacity. But I know this. Peter never probably planned for 3,000 people to get saved on that one day. He just simply did what God had called him to do. And so... As a result, though, God blessed it. He got involved, and he 
he, he worked in a miraculous way that 3,000 people got saved. Now, we look at this first 41 verses in the book of Acts, and I'm just kind of give you a heads up on where we're going from here. From verses 42 to 47 is what we're going to look at over the next several weeks. And what the church did once they were sort of established as the church, here's what they did. But in the first 41 verses, I think we can pull some general observations about what it is about church growth and so on that we can pull for today. And I, and, and I just want to give you these. First is this, that church growth is both biblical and logical. Church growth is both biblical and logical. For most of you, then, okay, yeah, I got that. That's nothing new. You're exactly right. In fact, it's biblical because we know it happened. Uh, I'm not saying that, that there's any prescription for this, go do these things and so on, and this will happen, but we know it did happen. Verse 41 again, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. The end of verse 47 says this, and every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. It, it, initially, a bunch, and then every day. And then look at, at, at chapter 4, verse 4, it says, but many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men came to about 5,000, continuing to increase. Verse 32 of chapter 4 says this, Now the multitude of those who believed. So it goes from being 3,000 to then everyday additions, then 5,000, then a multitude. Later on, they basically say they can't count them all. There's so many people coming to know Jesus and joining the overall church. And then they begin to divide up into local churches just like we know today. And so we understand that, that the rest of Acts confirms the fact that growth is biblical it happens and so we know that it's biblical it's something that it's okay if it happens and only that but it's logical i mean think about it you probably reason this way well anything that thrives any organism whatever that thrives reproduces itself it replaces itself and granted naturally if it doesn't it won't take long for that particular set of organisms to die out so i mean it's logical we know that if we don't continue as Christians and as a church to replace ourselves with new believers and so on, that eventually there's not going to be anybody left. It's just a natural course of life. We know that. So it's biblical and it's logical. But I want you to understand that I'm not here today to preach just pure numerical growth. And we've got to hit this target and these goals. Trust me, I've seen places, been in places where all that mattered was a certain number of people. That's not what we're going for. We do not set the agenda for how many people God will bring to this church. We don't get to do that. He does. It says later on that the Lord added to their number. Remember that in verse 47? The Lord added to their number. They did what they were supposed to do. The Lord added to their number, but they weren't scared of the Lord adding to their number. So I'm here to tell you, not that we're going to try to shoot for pure numerical growth, but legitimate growth is what we're aiming for. And we'll explain that in just a minute, what that means. Numerical growth doesn't always equal success. I have seen places, as I'm sure you probably have too, where there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people that you can't even count them all. And you just sit back and you get involved a little bit and you wonder, do these people really understand what's going on? So numerical growth is not always success, but legitimate growth is. And legitimate growth, as you'll see there on your bulletin, occurs, as we see in the book of Acts here in chapter 2, a couple of different ways. First, it occurs in existing members. It occurs in existing members. They, they were filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think about the life of Peter. This guy who preaches this incredible sermon after which 3,000 people got saved. A month and a half before this, he's huddled over in a corner denying that he even knows Jesus Christ at all. A month and a half. Not to say that he was not 
a believer at that point, but he didn't experience the boldness that came with being filled up with God's spirit and living accordingly. And his life was drastically different. You talk about growth in a person. You just do a study of the apostle Peter. You see how he grew as he got closer to the Lord. Not only that, but these people learned through, through the direct speaking of another language, they learned how to reach out to other people. There was a language barrier. They didn't know how to speak their language. The Spirit enabled them to speak their language so that those people could hear the truth. There was growth. They were becoming, as Peter shows us, more bold about the truth. Growth in their existing members. They were getting equipped and involved to do ministry. So there was growth, biblical growth, legitimate growth, involved that in existing members. Not only that, but we know as well from the book of Acts that legitimate growth occurs also in the addition of new members. In the addition of new members. Peter's sermon uh, illustrates the fact that those new members are to know and understand the truth. It's not just coming to kind of be a part of the buzz. Hey, what's going on over there? But we have the responsibility that when we add new members, that they know and understand the truth of God's word, that they understand it and follow it. These people that Peter was preaching to eventually, they were broken over their sin. They repented, it said. They wanted to know what to do. They were pierced to their heart. They repented and baptized. You want to know what legitimate growth looks like? Well, it looks like somebody who's going one way, and all of a sudden the Lord turns them around. They go the other way, and they begin to get involved. They, they give their lives to the Lord. And Peter then urged them, turn your back on the world. Be saved from this perverse generation. The addition of new members ought to be people who have turned their back on the pattern of this world. Peter says it's one or the other. And so we look at legitimate growth, and we realize it's a both-and thing. It's, it's both in existing members, the people that are already involved. We need to be growing and experiencing more of God, no doubt. And it's also in the addition of new members, because as we grow, we will naturally then, as disciples, become more evangelistic. That's the pattern in the New Testament. And as a result, reach out to the people that don't know the Lord, and we begin to grow in that. It's not either or. It's not either or. We don't have to just add new members and then be a mile wide and an inch deep. We don't have to just grow ourselves and then say, well, we're just sort of kind of a holy huddle, kind of a club. You've probably seen churches like that. And and we don't have to have either or. We can have both and because the Scripture says we see both happening in the book of Acts. But here's the hard part. You can read the book of Acts and you realize that it's not prescriptive, which means that you don't just look at the book of Acts and in chapter 2 see what the church was doing, and then at the end you get this little little footnote that says, okay, thou shalt do this, and you'll see all that happen. I wish that were the case. I really wish that Luke, who was writing the book of Acts, would have gotten inspiration from the Holy Spirit to include a step-by-step process so that it would make it really easy on us today. We just know, do this, 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 and this, and then everything's good. We don't see that. So as a result, what we have to do is go and look for some of the overarching truths, some of the implications we can pull. We have to be students of the Bible to know what is it that we can pull from this. And so I I think there are some takeaways, some implication that if we are to experience legitimate growth, that we can begin to implement both in our own lives individually and then as a church. And so I, I think there are some direct implications from this scripture, the first of which is to be filled. To be filled. You realize in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we receive the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there is tremendous confusion, debate, argument, church splits, and all kinds of fun stuff that happens when you start talking about things like this. So understand that we have neither the time 
nor the desire today to split our church. Really don't want to do that. We don't want to get into a lengthy debate or argument, but I want you to understand this, that when the Spirit of God came, one interesting thing was that they were all affected by it. It says that those little tongues of fire, the symbolizing of God's Spirit, came and rested on all of them, which means that it wasn't just for the disciples, because there were more than the disciples in there. In fact, most people would say there were about 120 people in that room, kind of like there is here today. About 120 people in that room, and as a result, they were all affected by God's Spirit filling them up. And I, I want to sort of give you kind of the what and the how and the why behind this whole filling of God's Spirit kind of thing, because that can sort of sound spooky. The idea is that when the what is, when you are baptized, the Bible says, with the Spirit, that simply means He comes to dwell within you at the moment of conversion. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, immediately He gives you in return... His Spirit, to live on the inside of you, to, to, to help you know what to do, to, to guide you through life. In fact, the word used for the Holy Spirit a lot of times in the New Testament is cheerleader or encourager. It's called paraclete. That's the Greek word, encourager, somebody to help you get through life according to the way God wants you to live. So, so being baptized with the Spirit means simply that you come into contact with Him and He indwells inside of you, okay? Being filled with the Spirit, though, is something completely different because it happens on an ongoing daily basis. When Paul says be filled with the Spirit, it's an ongoing thing. And that simply means that it's not some super spirituality reserved for the pastor or the deacons or the church staff or the Sunday school teachers. That it's not some alternate state of mind in which you sort of lose reality. That really being filled with God's Spirit is something that moment by moment, day by day, we are submitting to God's control in our lives. Let me put it in these terms, and maybe you can help follow along just a little bit. It's not relying on some past experience with the Lord. We probably have people here today, or you know of people, that are sort of banking their whole healthy relationship with God on something that happened to them a long, long time ago. And there's nothing wrong with that. Or we're hoping that we'll maybe one day experience something really Amazing from God. And neither one of those is really what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, be filled, which means just an ongoing thing, over and over and over again, each and every day. Think about it this way. If you are a married person in here, or if you've ever been married, you know that the only true test or true indicator of how strong and healthy your marriage is, is today. Right now, no other time. When somebody would, were to, to talk about you, to talk with you about your marriage, you wouldn't go back and talk about, and let me tell you about the day we got married. It was absolutely incredible. She looked so amazing. He was such a handsome man back then before he lost all his hair. That's what my wife said about me. And, and you know, and boy, it was incredible. We were so in love. And man, those first couple of years, they were just awesome. You'd look at that person and say, well, okay, well, that's great, but how are things now? Oh, let me tell you about our wedding day. It was just, these napkins were perfect. All oh, the cake was incredible. Man, it tasted good. and That wouldn't make any sense. Or, or if you ask them, they say, well, you know what? Let me tell you the plans I've got. You know what? About a year or so, we're really going to get it together. I mean, it's going to be incredible in our marriage. In your marriage, the only indicator of how strong it is is today. That's it. And so if you're having a really, 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 really strong marriage, it's because today you've made an investment in your marriage, and today it's strong. Now, understand, 
that I'm not condoning that if, well, my marriage is awful today, so I'm just having an awful marriage. I'm going to go home discouraged. That's not what I'm talking about. But you understand, hopefully, what I'm saying. It's the same with being filled with God's Spirit. It's the same with our walk with Him each and every day. You can't ask somebody, how are you doing with the Lord today? And they say, well, let me tell you about this camp I went to when I was a teenager. It's incredible what happened at that camp. Well, that's great. What's going on now? Well, let me tell you, look, in the future, I've got some great plans for what God and I are going to do together. No, 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 look, I'm talking about now. Paul was reminding the people in Ephesians, it's about constant, day by day, being filled up with God's Spirit. And so we look at it and we say it's not some alternate state of mind, some unconscious activity. It is every single day. The word that's used in Ephesians 5 for being filled carries with it some, some sort of notions, some ideas, one of which is the idea of a ship being carried along by the wind. Think about God's Spirit and His work in your life, and it's sort of like being carried along by something that blows into your life and keeps you moving forward. Some of you experience that. And you say, the only thing that's kept me going through this tough time, the only thing that's helped me out has been God's Spirit pushing me along, helping me to grow and to be more like Him. It also carries with it the connotation, the idea of of salt sort of permeating some meat to preserve it and to, to give it flavor. And when we think about that with God's Spirit, He fills us up in such a way that that everything we think, everything we do, everything we say is a result of His interaction with our life. And it also reflects total control, this word of being filled. If you think about it, you are controlled by whatever you're filled with. You're filled with anger, controlled by anger. Filled with fear, you're controlled by fear. You're filled with joy, you're controlled by that. Filled with sorrow, regret, whatever it may be. And he says, you are to be filled and then controlled by God's Spirit. And, and the next question then is, well, why on earth does that even matter? Simply put, because you cannot know or do God's will apart from being filled daily with His Spirit. You ever been there? You ever tried to sort of figure things out on your own and you're sort of, you'd sort of know you've been drifting from God? Just not quite close, but you just want God to answer some prayers and you wonder why things don't go on? Well, the reason probably is because we are not daily being filled up with His Spirit. We cannot know or do God's will apart from His Spirit. You'll never have confidence in your salvation. You'll always doubt if you're not daily being filled up with God's Spirit. You'll never have prayers regularly answered. You'll wonder why God doesn't seem to listen to you or why the answers that come are just sort of in code, so to speak. And you've got to try to look at something on, in the world to figure out what might God be saying to me today. Those who daily walk with God experience regular prayer being answered. We also experience the fruit of the Spirit that help us in our relationships, love, joy, peace, patience, those things. Some of us wonder, well, why is my marriage awful? Why is it my relationships are terrible? Well, it could be because we're not walking daily according to God's Spirit. How then are we filled with the Spirit? Well, the first thing is to confess any sin that may be in our life. The biggest barrier between us and God is our sin. It always has been and it will be until He calls us home to be with Him or He returns. It will always be the biggest barrier. And so if we are to experience Him on a regular basis, the first thing we've got to do is confess our sin. And then secondly, to surrender everything we, we have to the Lord, our time, our energy, our resources, our, our, our efforts, our goals, our, our entire lives surrendered to Him. And then also along the way is to fill up our minds with what the Bible says, God's very word to us. How is it that every day we can experience the promises God has for us? Confess sin on a regular basis. Be ruthless about it. Get that sin gone. Confess it. Lord, I messed up. You know it. I know it. I know what it is. I'm confessing it. And I'm moving on. 
confess it, be ruthless, and then commit, God, everything I am today. God, you make the most of my time. I'm giving it to you today. And, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to face, but I know that you need to be with me in order for me to be successful. God, I'm committing everything I have to you. Lord, as a result, I'm going to fill my mind up with who you are, and I'm going to be living according to your word. I've heard the connotation of bleeding scripture. You ever know somebody like that? Anytime you bump into them, anything you say to them, they have a response that comes maybe not directly as a quote, but something, some principle out of God's word. They just bleed it all over the place. Imagine that being the case in our lives. The results of this is that people were drawn, as we see in the book of Acts, they were drawn to the vicinity of where God's spirit was working. They heard this sound. They gathered. And then what on earth is going on? We are all attracted to somebody who legitimately lives for God each and every single day. And as a result, the disciples experienced the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus said. And they were now able to understand and to do God's will, and they were forever changed. And so when it comes to this idea of being filled, I realize this. We have some folks who need clarification. Well, I didn't realize that's why things weren't exactly the way I thought they ought to be in my life. Hmm, maybe I need to kind of get closer to the Lord and live with Him each and every day. Some of us need confrontation. We need to realize this is not an option. To be filled with God's Spirit is a direct command from the Scripture. It's not an option. It is the norm. The other day I walked into a McDonald's restaurant, and there was a boy who was probably 10 years old, give or take, with his mother. Nancy and I had our three children. I was carrying one, kind of dragging the other one, and Nancy was dragging one too. You've been there, you know what that's like. And so we approached the door, and these people were in front of us, mother and her son. Son opens the door, and I'm fully expecting that I'm going to have to kind of, you know, drag a kid and hold another one and kind of get the door with my foot or something. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I fully expected that about the time I get there, the door would shut, and I'd be stuck. But you know what this little boy did? Ten years old, he opened the door, and he kept holding it. I almost dropped one of my kids. It was amazing. It was unbelievable. He opens the door, and he, and he holds the door, and he says, go ahead. I'm like, am I, where are the cameras? There's got to be some kind of joke to this. The kids don't do that today. It's just not the way that they operate. And, and then I figured out why, because the next door was being held by his mom. Hmm. He learned something. And we walked in, and I, I, I said, go ahead. And they said, no, no, you go first. We, ha- we, we don't order quickly because our kids are, I don't want that. I don't want that. I want that. No, I don't want that. We don't order quickly. These people were stuck in line behind us. It was the norm years ago, though, for stuff like that to happen. You know, it was the norm for, for even young boys to hold open the door for a young girl. It was the norm for people to do things like that, to sort of get out of the way and say, you go first. It used to be the norm. You realize in the Scripture that it is not the norm for us to sort of exist in life apart from being filled every single day with God's Spirit. That in the New Testament, the Christians in the New Testament would have been shocked to find out that we sometimes, as Christians in 21st century America, view it as what is going on with them. They really seem to be walking with God. That was the norm for them back then. It was just normal. And so some of us need to be confronted with the fact that this is not normal, just to sort of, "Mm, I don't really care much about God. That's not the norm for Christians. The norm is to be passionate, to be seeking God each day. That's what they experienced. And some of us just need confirmation. Keep going. You're doing it. You're living it every single day as best you can. Keep going. 
And so we looked at the first principle we can pull is to be filled, and then we'll close quickly with the last two. The second one is to invest and invite. Invest and invite. There's no direct command in Acts chapter 2 to do this. But by implication, I believe we can pull this principle from the Scripture. The only way that people are going to fully understand what God is doing in your life is if you get involved with them. You know this. You've had this happen to you. You've seen this happen. People are not just going to wait, and you can't wait, for somebody just to figure it out about you. You realize that there has never been, as far as I know, a person who has come to know the Lord in a very real and life-changing and saving way by somebody who just sort of acted good in front of them and never did anything else but sort of each and every day, I just kind of do what I do, and I'm going to be a good person. I don't know of any situation like that, but I know of tons of situations who those very people who did what they were to do every single day and in conversation invested and figured out ways to get to know somebody else and at the appropriate time then invited them to a spot where they could hear the gospel or maybe presented it to them. The disciples were filled, understand this, with the purpose of speaking to people who otherwise would have not understood them. It shows again that the gospel was meant for all nations and all people. And we have to also speak the language of the people around us by investing in their lives with a purpose. I talked to Jeremy Jenkins, our student pastor, this past week, and he had the opportunity to take a couple of our students and, and a couple of our college students out to Callaway County High School. And he had communicated with a football coach to say, hey, we'd like to come and bring some fruit and some water to the football team. And he told me, he said, next time I'm going to get more. Because those guys were hungry and they were thirsty. But the investment was made into the lives of 70 or so football players who otherwise may have nobody in the name of Jesus Christ going to minister to them in any way. An investment was made. Were there tens of people who got saved that day? No, but an investment was made. They began to speak their language. Those guys were hungry, so here's some food. They were thirsty. Here's some water. Begin to speak their language. On September 25th, this month, just in case you want to mark your calendar, some of you got to be involved last time, we are once again going to serve breakfast to the teachers at East Elementary to make an investment in them and hope that one day God will bless that and use that so that we might be in a position to talk with one of them when they are in need and to say, let me tell you what the truth is. Let me tell you why we do what we do. Let me tell you who God is. Let me declare, as the Bible says, the magnificent acts of God. On October 31st, we're going to have what's called a trunk or treat, which is basically a safe alternative or addition to whatever, to trick-or-treating in the neighborhoods. And we're going to host it right here. Invest in our community and see what happens. We'll give you more details about that later on. Jesus himself even served first, and then he spoke to people. He earned the right to be heard. The disciples were given power to talk to people in a way that makes sense. And so here's what we can do this week. You probably maybe have somebody in mind that you work with, that you go to the store on the mornings with, or that you see on a regular basis. Pick one person this week. Get them in your mind right now. Just get their face in your mind. You may not know their name yet. Pick one person to invest in. How can you, with a neighbor, begin investing in them, serving them in some way, doing something for them? I've often thought about this. How can we raise up in our church people who will say, you know what, for my street, my cul-de-sac, my business, my place of employment, wherever I am, wherever I am on a regular basis, I'm going to take the mentality that I'm the pastor for those people. And they may not go to church anywhere they might, but I'm going to do for them 
what, what ought to be done. I'm going to shepherd them as best I can. I'm going to care for them. When they're having a bad day, I'm going to make sure that I know about it. I'm going to send them a card. I mean, I'm going to do something like that. I would love to be able, if you're interested in that whatsoever, I don't have all the answers, but I love talking about stuff like that, trying to brainstorm and figure something out. If you own a business, if you work in a business, if you've got people you're around on a regular basis, you go to school, whatever it may be, you may call this week. There will be one or two people. There will be nobody. But I'd love to sit and brainstorm with you. How can you, where you are, planted in the community, begin to impact and invest in people's lives? And then invite them. Invite them to a place where the gospel is going to be presented, where Jesus will be lifted up, where they'll be told the truth. Peter wasted no time presenting these people with the truth once the interest was there. So invest in people and invite them to come to a place where they can hear the gospel. If you're inviting them to church, this would be the ideal first step, 10 o'clock, Sunday morning. And the third principle is this as we close, is to model and urge total commitment. Model and urge total commitment. They said, what must we do? Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this perverse or this corrupt generation. He urged them to repent and to be baptized, to turn away from the world they were living in. And understand, this would have been a huge deal for them. He doesn't say, what must we do? Okay, look, come to church and see if it works for you. See if this whole life is what it really, you know, is cracked up to be. He says, no, no, repent and be baptized. Understand, for a Jewish person, to be baptized in that day would have been a break from their family, a break from all that they had ever known, and it was to be as public as possible. Peter allowed for no secret commitments to the Lord. I often get the question, look, I'm scared to death to get baptized. What can I do? I fully respect and understand that. I remember as an eight-year-old kid, it took me six months to come down and walk down that aisle and tell them, finally, look, okay, I know it's what I got to do. It's, it's scary, but I'm going to do it. I, I want you to know that in the New Testament, over and over, they were urged to make a public commitment to the Lord. I don't try to be hardcore with this. But I want you to understand that if you are willing to make a public commitment in front of Christians, maybe by baptism or by joining the church, you are more likely to do that publicly out in the world than if not. And so the, Peter urged them toward total commitment, all of your life in a very public way, and so that we know that the health of any church depends on the total commitment that its members have to Jesus. And so we think about it, you know, that first church wasn't called to merely survive, but to be unstoppable. They experienced legitimate growth, and we have to as well. And so how do you need to respond today? Maybe to be filled, to say, God, I know that moment by moment I'm not thinking about you. Day by day I'm just kind of winging it on my own. God, I'm, I want to be filled up each day. I want to know your will, and I want to be able to do it. I want peace in my life. I, I want my marriage put back together. God, I want relationships restored. I I want to see you work, and I want to see answered prayer. Maybe today you just seem to say, God, I want you to fill me up. I, I just want you to, to just bubble out all over the place. God, I, I want to, to commit that to you. Maybe, maybe your commitment today is I'm going to invest in somebody this week. 
and I'm going to invite them maybe to come to church next week or, or maybe I'm going to take the opportunity to talk with them about what God has done in my life. Maybe that scares you to death. Beginning next Sunday night, just as a side note, we're going to start a series, a teaching series on Sunday nights, a little Bible study that all is based on all personal evangelism. How can I know how to talk to people about God a little bit better? How can I be a little more bold? How can I have some tools in my hand? We're going to talk, start talking about that next Sunday night. So maybe you'd respond today by just praying for that person. You say, that's who I'm going to target. That's who I'm going after. Or maybe you just respond in total commitment to the Lord and say, I, God, I, I know this has got to be public. And I've been living it secretly, but God, I, I know it needs to be public. Based upon the fact that verse 41 of Acts chapter 2 says that those who accepted the message were baptized and then added to the number. I realize today that some of us need to accept the message. Some of us need to be added to the number, not of Elm Grove Baptist Church, but to the number who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. Some of us need to accept the message today. Peter told them, look, Jesus came because sin required a sacrifice, and God demanded a perfect sacrifice, and that either the person who had sinned must die or a substitute must be given. Jesus came as that perfect substitute and covered everything that we've ever done that's called sin, that we've done wrong, that keeps us from God. And Peter said not only that, but he was raised again to conquer all that stuff, to give us victory and to prove that he was the Messiah that the Bible talked about. And now he sits with God and he says, it's time to respond to that message. Maybe for some of us, we've been playing the game and coming to church, and that's been our, what do I need to do? And well, I'll just go to church. And for some of us, truthfully, we need to accept the message. Jesus is the only way for salvation. Not going to church or just doing a bunch of good things is going to get it done. Only through faith in Him. And so maybe you say, that's the commitment I need to make. And I need to place my trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you'll call on Him as Lord, wanting Him to be in charge of your life, and that you'll confess with your mouth that He is going to be Lord of your life and believe in your heart that He is who He says He is, the Messiah that came, who died and was raised again, the Bible says you'll be saved. So maybe that's the response that you need to have today. But either way, I pray that we'll go out and we will invest in the lives of others. That we'll be filled each day with God's Spirit. That we'll urge and it will model total commitment. And that as a result, we will be the type of biblical church that experiences legitimate growth. That we'll be confident that we have both and. Both in our existing members growing to be more like the Lord. And addition of new members who get it and understand and have their lives changed by Jesus. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your word and for the opportunity you have given all of us to experience legitimate growth. I pray that it would happen in our existing members and those folks who have already maybe planted their lives here at Elm Grove. I pray, Lord, that we would grow to be more like you, to be filled each and every day to know and understand your will and then to, to carry it out. And Lord, may we invest and invite those people that are around us, investing in their lives, just doing simple little things so that they might give us the opportunity to talk with them about you or to invite them to church. Lord, most of all, we pray that we would make a complete and total commitment to you, leaving our old life behind and that we would commit completely all of our lives to you. We thank you for your commitment to us, that you promised you'd never leave us, you'd never forsake us, that nothing can take us away from your love. We thank you for Jesus, for the sacrifice he made so that we might be made right with God. We thank you for that. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.